Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome back to The Hero's Journey. This is your host, Ashley Lukens. In this episode, I interview Matt Bertulli, the founder of Lomi, a countertop composting appliance that has brought me a lot of joy over the past six months. As an urban dweller, I think a lot about my waste streams and how we can optimize them to both mitigate climate change and also turn our waste into a resource. I hope you enjoy this episode. I have to tell you, I'm like an early supporter of the Lomi. I bought you guys when you were on Kickstarter. No kidding. And then I waited like a year to get mine. And for, for a second, I was like, did I get fucking scammed? No. Like, is this thing never going to come? That's a fair question, right? Like most crowdfunding things uh, don't ship. That's what I'm saying. And yeah. I've gotten caught up in a few of those here locally yeah, in Hawaii. So I was like, We were... Then- yeah, we were, we were, we, we, I remember like we were venture backed. Uh, we're like two years into building it. And then we did the thing when we were sure we could finish it. Nice. <laughs> that so, was the difference. Let's start at like the very beginning of the Lonely Story, which if, are you the inventor? I am the, I guess I'm like one of the idea people. So like, yeah, I, I, I had the, so my original idea, so we we had this business, we still do, called Peel a Case, right? We, we make a compostable phone case. Um, and so we were really deep in this world of like compostable materials. What works, what doesn't, home, industrial, commercial, like all the whole mess that is compostables. Uh, and on one of our board meetings, this is like pre-Lomi, right? One of the things, my ideas was like, well, why don't we just get into the compost facility business? Because all of these compost facilities in America do not take compostable materials. They filter them out. So even if you think that a straw is compostable and you put it in your bin and you send it out, when it gets to the facility, they literally just sift it out and throw it in the trash. So like you think you're doing well, but you're not. Um, so my pitch to my board, my investors was like, let's just build better compost facilities. And uh, one of them, one of my board members has a lot of experience in waste management. He's like, you do know that those cost like a hundred million dollars to build. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then I think that I'm like, okay. And then on a whim, uh, I said, uh, well, like if, if Elon Musk can put a gas station in your garage, why can't I put a landfill in my kitchen or in my, in my garage? That like, was the, that, that's the quote, man. Right. And, uh, that, Minus that Elon Musk doesn't bring a good brand halo right now. Probably not. No. <laughs> um, but that idea kind of like got our material science team thinking like that, you know, you're right. Like there is, you can't speed up um, like traditional compost. Like if you look at like what is mature compost and what comes out of a Lomi, like they are different, right? Like Lomi is more pre-compost. 
versus like six month mature compost in a backyard pile or a commercial pile. Um, so you can't speed up mother nature that much, but you can get pretty far. And that's, I mean, I like- thought you were lying when I first saw the video. I was like, this is full of shit. This is we not caught a lot of shit for, like we, we caught a lot of shit for it and we still do. Um, you know, people friend, don't believe it's possible. I know. I know. And, and so I have a friend, his name's Kevin. He runs a YouTube channel called Epic Gardening. Um, and we've become friends. Like, and I really like Kevin and Kevin's like, he's a hardcore composter, like lives in San Diego. His whole yard is one giant homestead. And he reached out. He's like, he, they bought one, uh, part of the Kickstarter his team did. And, uh, then I flew down to San Diego to just like chat with him. He's, you know, like, let's make a YouTube video about this. Cause Kevin's like, I want to explain it to people, yes. you know, like how, like we're getting caught up. Like we're being a bit pedantic over what we call things versus like, what does the machine do? And, yes. and you know, what my, uh, science team, like we've got biologists, material scientists, like what they like to remind me all the time is, um, that what comes out of Lomi is incredibly valuable right? Like it's soil food. hundred percent. Call it whatever the hell you want, but it's soil. It's very bourgeois of me, but I use it to feed my grass and yeah. I have like the hottest lawn in the neighborhood with the least water needs. Yes. Because you're giving it like highly dense, uh, like high nutrient density, right? Is so if you're, and it's kind of like to your point with your body, you know, it's shit in shit out. So like if you put garbage in the loamy, what comes out of a loamy is garbage. Like you've reduced it in size and volume. There's definitely positive to that. But if you feed it, like if you eat well and you, you're like, you care about the food that you ingest, then whatever your waste is, if it goes into a loamy, then what comes out of a loamy is actually like, it should be back in the ground as efficiently as possible. That's the best place for this stuff is back in the ground. Yes. It's funny, Matt, because I, can I call you Matt or do you prefer Matthew? I don't care. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I used to own a cloth diapering store. Oh. And I would say the same thing to people. Like, if you are used to cloth diapering, then the poop goes where the poop's supposed to go. And then everything else gets washed and handled. The idea that we're just throwing poop and plastic in our trash cans 15 times a day with a newborn is bonkers to me. I know. Yeah, we did the cloth diapering thing for a bit, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a commitment, but it's yeah. also like now I cannot not compost. Right. For me, like I used to live in a rural community, so I could drop my compost off at a local farm, but then I moved into a city and I was like, I don't want to have a compost pile in my yard. No. Because I've had rats. I'm a single mom. I don't want a rat. So yeah, pests is a, is a real motivator. Yeah. And so I'm like, saw your commercial and I'm like, well, is this a lie? Like can a product actually yeah. create dirt in four hours? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Think about it, like what most food is water. Um, so like getting the water out is one part adding in. And then like, you got to think like most food scraps, there's a lot of bacteria going into a loamy. You know, and like bacteria is not bad, like uh, pathogens are bad. So like you have to heat up the machine high enough to kill the pathogens, but not so high that you kill the healthy bacteria. That's the magic. And 
you know, so the answer is yes. Like what comes out of a Lomi is like super usable, super valuable, you know, if, and if you have a lawn, like, I love that you said that, but so we don't do a good enough job telling people this, that like what comes out of the machine, just go put it on your lawn. Like if you're not a hardcore gardener, this is like free lawn fertilizer. Yeah. Look at that lawn, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it works so well. Like I do the same thing in my, I'm in Canada though. So I like my lawn does not look like that right now. Uh, I live in Hawaii. So always. Oh, yeah. A lawn. yeah. See, no, no, no. We're the opposite. <laughs> um, but that idea right there, like, I mean, I think live reds, like lawn is the largest crop in America is grass, which is crazy. I know the, the San Diego guy is going to turn off this episode immediately because I am not a yardener. Um, no, I mean, look, I, uh, he and I joke, like, I, we set up our first like raised garden bed this year to grow food. Um, now the caveat to that is I live in a place called the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia in Canada. Um, think of it like Napa North. So okay. we, we grow an obscene amount of food here. Like wow. we're just, we're water, like we have lakes everywhere, lots of fresh water. Um, and the climate is like hot and dry you know, for a good part of the year. So like we grow a ton of food. Jen and I have just been spoiled with like our access to farm fresh food is very high. Right. So there's not a lot of like, I need to, I need to do this myself to get that quality of food. Um, but we started anyway. And I was, you know, Kevin and I were joking, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. That's why I watch his YouTube channel now. Cause like he's teaching me. Um, I text the guy and then I watch his YouTube channel. It's, 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 <laughs> And uh, yeah, I think like, even if you're not a gardener, right? Um, a lot of people in America have a lawn and it's like, instead of taking your food and throwing it in the trash or like, or any truck, any giant ass truck picking things up, like we just, do we need more of those on the road? Um, no. So throwing it on your lawn is great. Like that's just back to the earth. You know, Matt, I, in, in another part of my life, I work for a family foundation and we funded a series of in-vessel composting facilities um, produced by Green Mountain Technology. Do you know about this? I've heard, I've heard this name before. This is your next investment. Uh, they, you can compost all compostable materials in the size of a shipping container overnight. It can wow. take uh, like a thousand pounds of food and compostable material a day. There's uh, I, I like there's biodigesters like this too, right? That can just like these commercial size machines. Like I saw a presentation once a couple of years ago, maybe two, three years ago, with this idea of sticking biodigesters in the sides of like arenas and stadiums. Yeah, and hotel. Like, I mean, for Hawaii, you can imagine like what our we have 30 million tourists, yeah, and one million people that live here. So there's a yeah. massive temporary trash yeah. producer. Hawaii is one of my best markets for Lomi. Uh, oh, I bet. Because like waste, waste well, you know, when you're on an island like that, like your waste infrastructure sucks. Um, and we're all, I think, highly conscious that like, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it disappeared. Yeah. Like we have the waste from the entire West Coast washing up on our shores I every know. single day. I know it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. Yeah. And that's the the group that we funded this in-vessel composting machine for. What they do is they do all the surf contests. 
So they're taking in thousands of pounds of trash six months a year, and they were able to get the contests to convert to compostables. But then they realize it's not fucking compostable. So it's all going to our incinerator. And they're like, if we really want to close the loop on this, we need a compostable machine that's cheap that we can distribute through a microgrid and we can avoid, you know, in the States, governmental services are less than par. Uh, They're also like anything around waste. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Like it's, it's, it's corrupt. Right. Like this is waste is easily one of the best businesses on the planet. You know, uh, like it's, it, it is up there with death. Mm. Like it's that consistent. We, we all produce waste from the minute we're born to when we die. Like we we're waste, we're waste making machines. We make, what do we do as humans? We make meaning and we make waste. <laughs> uh, so you think like the business of waste is so consistently awesome. There is absolutely no incentive for anybody involved in it to change. Like they just make too much money. Yeah. You know, like it's, it, why would they ever not want landfills? They're cash machines. Yeah. We're running out of space. Yeah. But (laughs) they don't care. Right. Like that's not their problem. That's going to be the government's problem or it's going to be some future person's problem. So you're not wrong in that. Like uh, even if, and I I think like, here's, here's the thing too. Like, I don't actually think, uh, one of my beliefs is like, I don't believe people are malicious, uh, but I usually default to incompetence, right? Yeah. And and governments, I don't believe anybody in the government, like well, I'm sure there's exceptions, but like most people are not malicious, right? Nobody's setting out to do harm. But when you're dealing with like such large complex systems, it's really reasonable to think that the systems themselves are going to become incompetent. Not because the individuals are incompetent. It's that there's so many of them and there's so many moving parts. And if you've ever like, I've like, I've weirdly nerded out on like waste management, not the company, but like the industry, uh, it's highly complicated. Like it really is, you know. Well, give our listeners like the wiki overview of our waste system. I mean, in America, like Canada, North America, we're, we're really bad at this. The Europeans are definitely getting better. Um, because they've like managed to get people to sort more in the home. Uh, like, so there, there's cleaner streams of waste in Europe. I would say that's the basic, the basic thing is you have to view waste in the, like through this lens of like, uh, like everything is a river of waste, right? And each river is a specific kind of stream. Like it's a, a type of waste in the stream. Um, you know, so plastic being the gnarliest because there's so many types of plastic and, so many of those types aren't recyclable. Like they're just never going to be recycled. I just and that's like an important point to our listeners. Like recycling is for all intents and purposes, a myth. It's a lie. It's, I think it's the biggest lie of the last 50 years. Yes. Uh, hands down. Um, it's a great, like, I believe it was actually even the concept of it was created by like oil companies so that they can continue to sell plastics because plastics. And then on the other side, right. Not to go down that rabbit hole, but like plastics are one of humanity's great technologies that has allowed us to move forward as a society, right? Like it has, it is one of those technologies that has enabled like uh, poverty to come down, right? Like food, like people starving, like everything, like cars to get lighter, emissions to go down, like plastic is so freaking important and just like water, it can be abused. So 
you know, you can drown on water, but that doesn't make water like net bad. Uh, you know, it's the abusive thing. So like plastic is one stream, very, very complicated. You've got streams like paper and glass that are highly recyclable. Like those are awesome. I think like 70% of all paper gets recycled. I think it's pretty, like it's a pretty clean waste stream. Um, glass is pretty clean. Steel can be pretty clean, except it's still cheaper to make virgin steel than it is to make recycled steel. Um, and then you have like organic waste, which again, it's not as simple as like, um, as most people think, or, or even just like compostable waste, if you want to go there. So if you're a waste, if you're thinking like of a municipality, so like now that you know, there's lots of streams now go and say like, you've got a place like LA County where you have like millions of people, um, all throwing shit away all the time. So it was like bins going to curbs, being picked up. Then they get like brought to transportation stations, sorting stations. They need to figure out where does this stuff go? Like, is it landfill? Is it incinerator? Is it compost, commercial compost? Like, There's so many. So it's like there's input streams and then it gets sorted and there's output streams. All of that, right? That is a huge. And then the numbers, all of that is so big. Mm. You know, like the average individual throws out hundreds of pounds of food a year each. Um, that's just food. That's not even the other stuff. That's not packaging. And we, I mean, we're not even touching on the fact that this food waste is a major green gas emitter. Oh, yeah. I mean, food going to landfills is like it's hell. It's That's creating methane. And methane is basically lighter fluid on the environment. Like if you, have, if you know how lighter fluid works on a fire, right? Like CO2 is one thing. Um, you know, bad, like too much of it, bad. Uh, methane is like 80 times worse than CO2. So like it burns hotter. It doesn't burn as long, but it burns hotter. So yeah, I mean, food going to landfill. Um, I constantly hear this, like people, people feel like there's nothing that they can do as an individual to help. Right. And I just say like, yeah, but look at your dinner plate. Like you could just start there and you could probably finish there. And if you just focused on what's on your dinner plate, so both where it came from and where it goes, you have done so much more for the world than anybody who like yells at somebody for flying, like so much because the mismanagement of organic waste is a huge contributor to, uh, it's like the easiest thing for us to do. And it's a big contributor to greenhouse gases. And so here you are, you're, you are producing compostable products. You're figuring out what is compostable, what's not. Yeah. And you decide, like, what if we created mini compost? What's yeah, that? So how, do you, how do you take a process? Like, you you hit the most, the, the key insight that we hit on, which is uh, backyard compost is great, right? Vermicomposting, great. Like, chickens, awesome. 99.9% .9 of Americans are not going to do any of those things. No way. There's just no way. Like, it, it's, look at our lives an urban environment no i even like i have like we have property and we still don't do it i don't want to deal with the pests like it's a comfort and a convenience thing and you know and, and i don't think we should shame people for that like so much of our lives are based on comfort and convenience so for us it was just how do you make something that's more delightful well, apartment living like oh apartment right there and the vast majority of urban americans live in like mixed use you know yep yeah, totally. So like 
that idea that like waste is a is a chore, it's a painful one. We don't like it. People, there's a lot of people who do want to like they want to do better. Um, we just hit this like sweet spot of uh, like we make the uh, the chore of garbage so much more delightful, right? Like now you don't have food in your bags. That yeah. alone, great. You don't have to take out your trash as often. Nothing is stinking. So that right By the there, way is the the logic of cloth diapering, but I digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Uh, so that kind of like we we once we came up with the idea, we started realizing that like we're solving a bunch of different problems that people. Um, I used to joke at the beginning of like developing Lomi that like we've all been held hostage by garden uh, garbage, right? And like we have Stockholm syndrome for garbage. We, <laughs> we yeah, we don't even know that like there potentially is a life without it. Like that yeah. idea like just invaded my mind and I, I just like, I haven't let it go. Um, and I, I'm like, I'm so far from perfect too. And, and I think that like, as a, as a brand and as an organization, this is just something that like, we believe that there's too in the world of like climate and environment, there's too much chasing perfect and not enough chasing progress. And we would all do so much better if like we just stopped throwing stones. Like when you see someone doing something, just really like, just shut up, you know? I was telling Julia y'all's new commercial about like, yeah, we, you do have to plug us in, but do you like wash your clothes in the sink? I know. Yeah, that was one of my anxieties. I was like, oh, like I'm plugging this in. And luckily my house is on solar. Sure. But your logic, I was like, yeah, why do I think that like comp making a step in composting needs to be perfect or it's not worth it? This is it. Actually, like what so where that came from, by the way, was uh I was I was like just I was just bitching to my team. Cause like you know, I was like, I was just my, you know, I was sitting with my creative team. I was just going on a rant about like I got like some one of my friends was like you know, giving me shit for like, oh, it's a plug-in machine and we don't need more things that plug in. And it's like a good buddy. And I'm like, dude, do you use a washing machine or a, or a, like a laundry machine? Like what, like you do your dishes by hand? Like, <laughs> you know, if, and, and it's like, if you invented the dishwasher today, there's a cohort of human beings on the planet that would lose their mind because it plugs in. So we've confused climate action with like electricity is bad. Yeah. It's not, you know, and uh, if for people who are listening, like if you really want to blow your mind, like really bend it. Okay. If you want the world to transition to clean energy, I can tell you a guaranteed way to not make it happen. Uh, telling people to unplug things. Okay. Here's yeah. why there are like trillions of dollars invested in the current infrastructure that generates electricity on this planet. That's called CapEx for companies, right? They invest capital into a project and over time they get the reward back for the investment. There is no way in hell any one of these organizations is going to shut down those sources of power because you want them to. Mm. So if you want companies and governments to build renewable energy the fastest path to do that is to actually increase the load on the grid, mm. right? Because building new supply 
they'll make that investment. They will not write off their old investments just for fun and for good vibes, right? Like, I don't care how much we scream at them. It's too much money and our system works on money. Mm. And asking if the change is wrong. This helps me understand why, I mean, as somebody who was curious, interested, fascinated, and then obsessed about waste, you decide to run a business and and be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Like, what Uh, does it mean to be an impact entrepreneur? To be someone who's solving big social problems, not through education or activism or protest, but like comprehending the logic of the market and then applying that logic to unwind the structures underpinning climate change. Yeah, or or use them, right? Uh, I think, you know, so I'm a, yeah, I'm definitely an entrepreneur. Um, This is my second company, right? I sold my first one four or five years ago when I was getting involved with this. Um, You know, I think like, for me personally, I'm an active, very avid outdoors. And I like, I, I mountain bike, I ski, like I grew up on the water. So like all of these things are very important to me personally. Um, so like, then it's, then it's a choice for, for me after I sold my last company, like build another company that doesn't have any impact. That wasn't as appealing. Um, go into some kind of like not-for-profit, like just pure activism. That's has a lot of like personal appeal to just work on something you're passionate about, but you quickly, if you've ever worked with any not-for-profits, you quickly figure out how slow they are. Um, they're just mired in red tape, you know, because they're, they're easily as, as organizational structures, they're easily abused. So they have lots of red tape wrapped around them. Business, however, for some weird reason is actually not mired in a lot of red tape. So like the world loves capitalism. It's responsible for everything we have. And rather than sit there and hate it for whatever is bad about it right now, right? We took this approach of like, well, the current version of like crony capitalism, that's bad. But like this idea of free market capitalism, that's actually, we like that. Um, You know, and, and most of the world's great innovations have come from business. Some have come from government. So like, I don't want anybody listening to say- Didn't like, Al Gore invent, invent the internet? Yeah, I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but there's like, there's a real place for like uh, government-backed R&D, mm-hmm. you know, like for these things that are just so far out that it makes no sense for businesses to do that, like research, like real research. What we work on is, past the research phase, right? Like when we invented Pila case, we were using materials that have been around a long time. Nobody, nobody chose to commercialize them. So our view is like, well, let's try to commercialize them and then use the money from that to do more and just like, see if we can build a business that had like does some good. Um, so I actually like, I really do believe that business as a structure, uh, is possibly the best vehicle we have right now for changing the world in a way that I think most people want. I mean, I, in my own journey as an activist, when I opened, I got my PhD in political science. So I studied resistance movements and I thought a lot about like, how do communities and 
entire countries come together to transform power relations. Yep. And was an activist myself at that time. But when I bought my first business, I was like, there was no convincing. It was like yeah. almost like I became an evangelist for a lifestyle and people were listening because we yeah. provided them the products, cloth diapers, reusable bottles, baby yeah. carriers that enabled them to live their values. I yeah, mean, that's to me where I see the Lomi and products like the Lomi is there's probably the majority of Americans or North Americans would like to compost, yep. but they just can't fucking figure it out. And they're not going to, they don't have the time, they don't have the money, they don't have the resources. Yep. And like a product makes it easy. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, I mean, there's a lot of history in, in throughout human history. There's a lot of like these kinds of products that come out initially, you know, the first phase is like, it looks like a toy, right? It's for like a very, like it's for a nerd of some kind. Even the computer started out there, you know, like we're zooming right now, but go back 40, 50 years. And like the computer was the land of like Steve Wozniak. Like it was just like super nerds that built these machines and look where we are now. Um, So there's so many products like this throughout history where they start off as toys, then they're ridiculed, you know, they, they get mocked more than they get adopted. And eventually they just become standard commonplace, like the microwave, the the laundry machine, the dishwasher, like all of those started out in that place. I think the first dishwasher was like on wheels and you had to like hook it up to your kitchen sink. Like it was not easy to use and it was very expensive and it was like purely for the, for the rich, um, you know? And, and I, so I think that like, when you study this stuff, you start to realize that uh, you can do quite a bit if you look at things with a long enough time horizon, um, and you look through this lens of like uh, human, like just progress, like human progress. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are the first trash-oriented appliance. That's the idea. That's what we care about. I mean, I guess maybe like the trash compactor. Oh, carburetor. Right. Like a old, like the under the sink, you know, convert your food into water, which turns out that's really bad too. Uh, yeah. like we should be putting food waste into our water supply. Um, you know, so it's, this idea has been around. Um, and actually I don't even think we're the first, like, I believe once we started getting into it, we found that in Korea, I think they've had, they've tried devices like this in the past, you know, what we were, I think what we did well, uh, was we were the first to explain it in a way that a lot of people understood. Yeah. Right. And we were the first to explain it in a way in America, in a way that like Americans really like, they're like, oh yeah, like I do want to do that. And we get a ton of, so like half. Well, you launched during COVID too. Yeah. We launched in April of 2021. Yeah. Cause I remember that moment was a time when I felt a lot of intimacy with my home life. You know, I mean, I think that's a part of what this is, is like recognizing that each of our homes is a little mini economy and we need to start thinking thoughtfully about each part of it. Yeah, And I just felt like having lived in a rural community and, and done the compost pickup thing, which is not possible municipally for the majority of Americans. I yeah. mean, lucky San Francisco. 
Uh, I mean, talk to people who have it. Like, so in Canada, we've had Greenman, we call it the Greenman program. Uh, like in Toronto, where I'm from, we had that for years. It's the most hated bin in everybody's lives, mm. right? Because the in an urban environment, uh, I don't know if it's the same in San Francisco, but in Toronto, um, at least once a month, the freaking raccoons figured out how to open them. Oh, and God. I would go out you know, get up for work in the morning and go out. And my yard was just covered in all of my week, two week old food waste. That's disgusting. So I like, I like part of the invention of Flomi was me saying to my team, like here in BC, we don't have that green bin program. And I looked at my team, like you guys have never had to deal with this little bin, but that little bin, that is hell for me. Like I hate food waste. It sounds like you've got a story of Lomi that's about like, reducing your food waste and having a more ethical waste stream, but you also have a pitch for people who hate pests. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I would say half of the people who buy a Lomi are, are mostly focused on the smell and the pests. So they don't like carrying leaky bags down in their apartment building. Uh, like people in Vermont are told that they have to bring their food waste to depots. So like, Oh wow. That's not fun. Um, you've got people who have like, they live in cottages and, and like rural homes that don't have regular waste pickup. They, that's not fun. So like, there's all these little pockets of people where like garbage is very unpleasant. Um, so one half of our, our customers is I want to feed my plants in my yard. One half is I just don't want the ants, (laughs) right? Like no ants, no raccoons, no rats. So you get this idea, you obviously work with a product designer, somebody that can kind of make your dream yep. come to life. The whole R&D team. Yeah. And like, help us understand the venture journey. Uh, like venture capital? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you said you're venture backed. So you obviously had some access to funding to get you to the Kickstarter phase. Yeah. So we raised money. Um, we did a series a before we started work on Lomi when we were just Pila case. So all we had was a material science business and we had our first commercial product, which luckily was a success was a, the world's first compostable phone case. It's like backyard compostable. It's like when there's a billion plastic phone cases sold every year, seemed like a good problem to solve. Um, so we raised our initial venture capital, uh, when we had that business on this idea that like there was a whole ecosystem around waste and consumer that overlap that we could build. And very, very quickly after we closed that round, we were like, shit, we need to like this Lomi thing is like, we think this is real. Um, with a funny story is like our board, which two, two of our board members are our investors. Um, and then it's like my co-founder, Brad and I, and a, a fifth member, Dan, um, our board was like, this is the dumbest idea ever. Like nobody's going to buy a, a freaking appliance that eats garbage guys. And so while I was like, we were really bullish on the idea. Everybody told us it was stupid and that we shouldn't get distracted by it. Um, it was a waste of time and money and blah, blah, blah. You know, luckily we still had control and we're stubborn. So we did it anyway. Um, and luckily we the were The first right. thing I'm thinking, Matt, is we need to get you some women on your board. Hey. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Believe me, that's a conversation. Uh, we're trying. Um, so 
the, the access piece is an important one. Like we had access to raise venture capital because both Brad and I have sold our companies. Like we, he sold his last one. I sold my last one. If for people that don't know, like that gives you instant, like old school street cred. Yeah. Right? Cache for sure. Yeah, like So now when you go out to investors, you know, I'm now I'm a, I'm a 40 year old male who isn't, it's not my first time. And, you know, uh, investors are all about risk and certainty. And like, there's this, you, I'm sure you've heard it, right. That like investors love to bet on the jockey, not the, like, not the category, not the business. Yep. That I, I think that like, I can't overstate how valuable and how lucky that is. Like, I think raising money is very hard. Like we did not have an easy time raising money, even with street cred and track record and like, look, the business is working. Like it's still hard. Um, especially you're trying to raise money for something that the world has never seen before. Yeah. That's even worse. So was Pelicase bought by a private equity firm or were your We still own it. Okay, great. Yeah. So we have Pelicase and we have Lomi, um, two teams. But isn't Lomi owned by? We split them out. So it originally like the organization launched Lomi right under one company um, just because like it's cheaper and easier to do that than to try to like build another company. And then uh, Lomi has gotten so much bigger than Vila Case that we just like, we spit, we split the two businesses to give them each their own teams and their own focus. Well, that makes me happy that Lomi's doing well. Yeah, very. Um, I mean, the feedback has been like, People are just like so into it. I'm right? so into it. It's just, it's so cool to see. I've never actually been involved in a business where like you, we created an entirely new category and people like it. Like it's, you know. So I'm on the board of directors of Ergo Baby, the baby carrier company. Oh yeah, I had one. Great. Yep. All, yeah. all parents our age have had Ergo Babies. Yeah. And Ergo wasn't invented by a woman in Hawaii. Um who sold her company to a private equity firm after seven years. But at that point, you know, I mean, it was global. And um, I sit on the board now as the only woman, which is interesting. Um, And one of the things that I've been wrestling with as the founder's representative on the board, but also as someone that like represents a more values aligned stakeholder set is how Inside of, if we believe that business is going to be the vehicle for social change, yeah, which our anti-capitalist friends will strongly debate. Yeah, of course. But if it is, then there's recognizing and learning to manage the logics of capitalism that drive values out of the business. Yes, you know, and so I'm wondering like how you've contended with that as you built your table. Yeah, like to really say, awesome. like, I'm in this because I think it's a great idea, but I'm not gonna sell out. It's so hard because like look when you when you have investors, investors want return. Right. And the thing to remember about VC or PE or whatever whatever brand of investor you have is that often the people you deal with aren't the ones writing the checks. They have these things called LPs, 
and LPs are the real check writers. And these are like multi-billionaire families and uh, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds. Like those people are investing out of a pension. They want to return. They have people to pay. So there's a really difficult and tricky balance between um, always choosing the best and right thing and doing the thing that will generate the highest possible return. So like, and those two things in an ideal world, they don't actually sit opposing to each other. There's a lot of overlap between them. But in reality, I, I would be full out lying to say that like, we don't encounter decision points along the way where we're having to pick one over the other a little more. So no matter what, as a business that has like, let's say I'm like, you're a, a, a business with a mission, like a real one, like us, um, you have to choose. What are you first? Are you a business or are you a mission? And we grapple with this in Ergo. Nobody wants to. So we choose, like, we will always be a good business first, because if we aren't, then there is no mission. Right. Well, I would argue. And then there's no customer. Yes. If I, I mean, people, we live in an era of cancel culture. Oh yeah. If businesses aren't living their values, if CEOs and founders aren't an expression of those values, yep. consumers become increasingly disinterested. They do. Yeah. There's for sure that it's, oh yeah. And like, and I believe that, you know, like if you look at our company's values, they, they very much echo what you just said. Right. Um, so like the way to, and if, so if, if you're an entrepreneur, or you're a business owner and you struggle with this, like the one way to round this is actually just extreme transparency. Right. And in that, when you are forced to choose something that seems more commercial as opposed to more impact, you need to explain why, mm -hmm. uh, and just like bear your flaws, man. And I think also, I mean, what I've always advocated for is like, I think everybody can be empathic about a journey. It's like for oh. us, we have a global supply chain. Yep. I mean, we have carriers moving from China to Vietnam to the US, then to back yep. to China. It's it's not, but now we're counting miles. We're thinking yep. about carbon footprint. Yeah, we're investing in offsets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know. It's funny. I actually like, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I, I believe that uh, largely people are just wanting more honesty now. Yes. Like, just like, if you look societally, right, the left, the right, the like all the divide and the everything on every topic, everything is so political and so divided that I do think that like what's resonating with most folks is just like a, is honesty, like radical. And I would, I would. I would morph it. I think it's authenticity. Yeah, that's what you, I mean that's what you land at, right? It is like one of my things like I'm a I'm a marketer. So like I like to tell my team all the time that people buy from people. They don't buy from companies. So the more human we are, the more likely it is that people will buy from us. And also you'll feel freaking better. Um if you if that's the kind of transaction, like you're building a relationship not a transaction. It's hard to do at scale. That's a whole other topic, but like we can do it. Um, I do believe that uh, if you follow that vein, right? People buy from people. If you then you're you have to wind up in a place, like honestly, intellectually, honestly, that um, that the 
the kind like you're you're effectively creating now all your decisions are like well how would i do this if i was with my friends like how what would they think if this was like that kind of interaction and i think that if you have if you know how to create good relationships in your life you know that that means like sometimes telling somebody that what they don't want to hear mm. uh doing it in a way that's like you know you're not an asshole you're just being honest and so i, I yeah like we've we take this stance that we would rather show people all of our flaws and let them choose than try to hide it and tell a better story or like what's perceived to be a better story. And the reason for that is like, I just think that society is going there. And I think that like, you're starting to see it, the, like, especially in the podcast world. Like, I think one of the reasons people like podcasts is you're just hearing a real conversation between multiple parties. Um, and I think that like the, the more uncensored, the more raw, the better. Well, I think you can even see it like in the way we talk these days. I've yeah. been noticing that people like to say, well, for me, well, for me. And I'm like, this is the podcastification yeah. of news. Yeah. This is the rise of the influencer. This is the cult of the entrepreneur. Yeah. This is why I want to know the founder yeah. and his journey, because that is how I feel humanized yep. in a market-based economy. Yeah, totally. I think, um, I mean, you, you hit on like this, this came up recently too, you know, uh, even within our own team. Right. So I have no women on my board of directors, not I'm a B Corp. I still don't have any women on my board of directors. I, somebody asked me that recently and I'm like, I don't have a good answer for you. Mm. That's the actual. Yeah, I'll join your board of directors. Yeah, I've had to replace one. This is my this is my not good answer, right? So somebody has to abdicate a seat uh, to to get there. And, and I think that like there's so much nuance in all of these issues. Um, and and my, I, we talk about this as a team all the time because like clearly we're passionate about some of this stuff, not all of it, but like some of it. Um, that to be intellectually honest is to also admit that like there's an ideal state for everything. Right. That's true. Um, but that's also highly personal. So, you know, this whole, like, I don't have a, fee I don't have a woman on my board of directors. Like, do I think that's a problem? Yeah. Right. If I'm into, if I'm really honest, am I solving it right now as the highest priority? No. Well, it's like the perfect is the enemy of the good staying, saying yep. totally our perfect progress, not progress. perfection. I mean, I think, you know, what I like to see it, change in the near future. Yeah. It's actually a conversation right now too at our board. Um, and it feels like there, we all need to do better at, at being able to present the business case for diversity and for, I mean, Jill, I, I don't even need to do that to be honest. Like the, 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 you know, 60, 70% of my customers are women. Like, what do you, like, this, I, this is, is my, my challenge back to my board. I'm like, what do you mean the business case? Like, how about that's just smart. You know, yeah, like, you're going to have better marketing, and better messaging. Yeah. So like it's, it's a, you know, uh, one of my buddies asked me recently, like, you know, what percentage of our staff was women if we sell to so much women? I'm, I'm like about 70%. <laughs> like it works out that like, it just works better for the business to do that. You know, whereas like I have a friend who has no female customers. His staff is almost all guys. Their customer base is dudes. He sells a dude product. And I'm like, don't ever let anybody tell you that you need a difference of opinion. <laughs> you're, you're killing it with your customer and they love you for it. Like, that's great. 
So I just think that like, uh, and I've written on this so much and I've talked about this, like if you, if you assume that someone is good, then you have to also assume that like, they're not doing something that you don't agree with out of malice. And that just because something is super important to you, if it's not to them, that doesn't mean that it's like lesser value. It just like, they're just not focused on it. Right. Like we're, I'm, I'm focused on waste. I don't really care or focus too much on other social issues. I've got one. It's a big one. Like, and, and I think that the world would be better off if we didn't shame people for not caring equally about all issues. Mm. Just you know, freaking recognize that. We've been grappling this at Center for Food Safety, who's the organization hosting this podcast, is this question of like, there are these deep interhuman issues that we need to grapple with. And board diversity is one of them. We also are dealing with like profound environmental issues and the way that humans have decided that this planet is for them. Right. Everyone else is. So I hear you. I hear you. And. I think to me, it's like the moment of the Lomi, like there are what the Lomi offers is someone who's not crazy about waste, right? Can do something, right? And it's not too hard. It's like you plug it in, you put your food in and it turns into dirt overnight. It's kind of phenomenal. Yep. Yep. And so there's that, like, I think when it comes to cross-cutting social issues that are hard to solve and people don't have the time and the bandwidth, maybe that's the challenge to folks that are working on those issues is to show up as a plug and play opportunity. You know, it's the, uh, I think there's tremendous. So like the capitalist in me actually believes that there's tremendous opportunity and impact at the intersection of a lot of these issues. Um, you know, like if you're if you're a climate activist, it's very hard to not also be uh, concerned about like racism, right? Um, and community segregation, because like where climate has impacts, I mean, let's be honest, it's not like to me, no, right? Like it's going to show up in places that are really poor. So like you can't be a climate activist and ignore poverty. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't like focus more on the climate. And don't like you, so you don't ignore it, but like you're putting 90% of your effort here and you're just paying attention to the connective tissue. That connective tissues is where like, you know, that's how we, like when we think about Lomi, here's a good example. Um, Lomi's 500 bucks. That's not cheap, right? That's not like everybody in America is going to have a Lomi. But if I, if we really wanted to put something like this in every home and really meaningfully change waste, that's a strategy decision as a business. Okay. Um, we can turn that into a very positive thing for the business. And at the same time, I can say like, what would need to be true for Lomi to be free for everybody in the world? Well, I'm like already like uh, tax rebates and then tax incentives for so many ways to get to that answer. But the reason we're asking the question is because we, we see the, the connective tissue between waste and poverty and like food waste and where food comes from the price of food and throwing food out and getting no value from it. There's connective tissue there. Yeah. So, you know, 
that's why I, that's why I think like it's great to focus on one thing, pay attention to like secondary or third order effects. That's what I'm talking about with connective tissue. Um, what I'm hitting on is like I've just really I've just learned like a lot of compassion for people who are solving any issue, uh, even though it might not be the one that I want them to solve. Like they're doing something, you know. They're they're certainly not doing anything bad. <laughs> So give us like, since we're almost out of time, like, let us know where Lomi's at. Like how many people are buying Lomi? Where can you find Lomi? Oh man, like hundreds of thousands now that have like- Wow, really? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, Like we've got like 80, 90 employees on the team. Um, You know, right now buying it, Amazon and Lomi.com is like the two main things. But I mean, we're starting a road show in Costco this year like we're we're starting to like get it out in the world like if you're in LA there are all the Airwan stores we have demos for Lomi in the Airwan stores um, la di da speaking of deep paradoxes hoity toits uh super fancy uh, I will tell you I had this moment where I was walking into an Airwan and I was literally like stepping around houseless folks that oh. were passed out on the sidewalk and then yes. went in to purchase a $27 smoothie. So I yeah. was like, there's a weird, there's a weird dichotomy there for sure. 100%. Uh, yeah. Look, I, I think, you know, so more and more, our, our goal is to like this year is to get, get, get Lomi into places where people can see it and talk yeah. to people about it so that they don't encounter what you did, which is um, there's no way this is real. Well, that's what I thought, but I bought it anyway because I was like, I need this. Most people think for that. my soul. Yeah. Yeah. Every time we put Lomi into another store, like a physical location where somebody can see it, the, usually the feedback we hear is, holy shit, it's real. Like yeah. we get that feedback. It's like people. Well, that's are- what, I mean, I'll post stories on my Instagram of like, this yeah. is what my Lomi did. And people are like, no fucking way. I know. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It, I still get it. I'm wondering too, like, and this is probably a much longer conversation that we don't have time for, but, you know, we've talked about the power and the potential of market-based solutions. We've talked about the pressure that venture-backed and sort of strictly return-focused investors have on social enterprises. Um, It sounds like you've used the B Corp model probably to protect some of these decisions in perpetuity in the business structure. And so for those who are listening, if you don't know about the B Corp movement, like it's an incredible way to put some like stakes in the sand. Legal structure that you can use. Yep. Yep. Um, And then we've talked a little bit about like how companies grow and it sounds like you're growing rapidly. Like, what do you think the vision of Lomi at scale is? Like, where do I find, when you guys are running at full tilt, Yeah, where are you manufactured? Where, where am I finding you? Like, yeah, that's a great, that's, I mean, it's a fun uh, mental exercise. Um, you want to be everywhere that people need it to be. So like on shelf in a Walmart, in a Target, um, you know, like easily accessible, both from a location and a price point, that's priority number one uh, right now. Um, you know, 
like in a dream state, we've got government incentive programs that people can tap into. Um, you know, we're working with like developers of multifamily housing to like just build these things in. So like all of that, it's just like for us, it's how do I get one in every house and how do I drive the cost down so much that it's just such an easy yes. Right. And then like, it's on us as a business to figure out how that works for us. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how I view, like I view the whole thing. Yeah, it would be cool. I mean, have you guys like thought about experimenting with sizes? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's coming. Stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Size and feature, you know, color. Like there's certain things that like from a product perspective, right? Like you can kind of see what where I'm going. Yeah. Um, like it's there's that's coming for sure. Yeah. A rose pink loamy for all the ladies in the room. Oh yeah. That's uh, highly requested. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right, Matt. I really appreciate your time. I'm a super fan. So, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duration, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason, and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.